It's great to be in the house of God this morning. Amen. Can we just pray together? Uh, Father, we thank you that today is a significant day for us as we hear the good news of your gospel, that we just come before you this morning, that this is a significant moment, that we don't take it for granted, this opportunity to be gathered under the name of Jesus, and that we're expectant that each and every single one of us can receive something in season, supernatural, that shifts us into a space, maybe that even shifts our lives forever. We thank you that this isn't about ticking a box of religion, but actually a connection with the living God, where we can truly say that our God is alive and that we expect Him to do something in our lives this morning that's never been done before. We give you all the praise, all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, it's good to be at church. Thanks, worship team. Don't you guys have such an awesome worship team here at Link Church? Hey? The um, true story, I wasn't going to be preaching today, and uh, we actually are on holiday, and um, as always, um, Tara and I make, a, make a, a, a point of connecting with pastors Dylan and Tess when we're down here for a meal, and um, over the meal, um, Dill was like, hey, why don't you share with our congregation on Sunday, and uh, the, the funny thing about that is um, I actually asked him to preach uh, in January at Redemption, and he said no. Um, he had other stuff on, and so when he asked me, I thought it was a bit of a, bit of a cheap shot, to be honest with you. But actually, as we were talking, um, I did feel a bit of a God, a God connection about it. Um, I always take it as a very serious responsibility to get up in a pulpit and talk about Jesus, but even more so when it's not our own church. Um, but I did feel that, that this was something I, I, that could be of huge benefit to you because I don't believe it's a sermon to Redemption Church. I believe it's a word for the local church. Um, and so I unfortunately don't have an incredibly amazing uh, feel-good Christmas sermon for you today. Um, in fact, this sermon is the exact opposite of a getting into a coasting mode and a holiday time and, you know, switching down a few burners and gearing down a few gears, but actually it's the opposite. But I do believe it truly is a word. I don't know if it's going to be for everyone, but I know for some of you, God really has something significant to say to you this morning. And our church has been in an interesting time. We really feel 2020 is going to be a, a, a significant year for our church, but I actually feel for the church. And I feel like um, as we've started to reflect on 2019 and dream for 2020, uh, God dropped this word in my heart, and I just preached it on Sunday at Redemption last week, but I feel it's actually a word in season for the church. And so, unfortunately, or fortunately, today, uh, Pastor Dylan was just like, please preach like you're speaking to your own congregation, um, and I want to apologize up front if uh, that's a bit rough around the edges, um, but I do really feel a God sense about this moment. And I do feel that, that there is more than just um, a sermon in this. And I feel that the Holy Spirit has sent me here on holiday <laughs> to break up that holiday with just a moment where we can, we can look into the future together. So is that okay? Cool. 
2019 for us uh, was an incredible year. Uh, God did some amazing things. Our church saw um, a lot of um, milestones we didn't really think would happen right now happen and a bit more than what we expected. Our church has recently just taken on the leadership role as well of a church in Holland. Um, not something we planned, as you do, um, but something that happened. What's been interesting is 2019 for us has been a year where we've, of course, seen God with us, but we've also been very aware of the enemy that's against us. It, it kind of felt like a grind. I don't know about you. Uh, 2019, and I've spoken to quite a few people, and quite a few people have said, yeah, it's kind of a year I'm pretty keen to see the end of. But the interesting thing about that is, um, often in our lives, and our walk with God, we see hardship, we see difficulty with a perspective, with an opinion, with an outlook. We might look at things going wrong or things, and I'm not talking about like obvious sinful decisions. I'm not talking about um, doing something that's, that's, according to the word of God, blatantly destructive. But I'm talking about like signing up for a future with God, signing up for a plan with God, signing up for a godly purpose and finding that that's met with a whole bunch of things not going the way you expected. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Hey, I'm going to serve a church and on the way to church you get a flat tire and you're like, oh, okay. And the next week the gearbox goes and you're like, interesting. And then, you know, following week you show up and you wake up and your car's not in your driveway because someone else has borrowed it permanently. I'm talking about, you know, my business is going to, my business is going to be a big part of, 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 of investing in the kingdom. And then all of a sudden, a whole bunch of things just happen. And it's interesting because we would equate difficulty and we would equate obstacles and we'd, equ we'd equate like resistance as often God abandoning us, God letting us down, us missing it. But in fact, the interesting thing is that the natural eye is almost never seeing a spiritual truth. Of course, we can recognize God doing something, but the natural eye only recognizes that after God's done it. But it's the spiritual eye that taps into the heavenly truth of what God is doing and has done, but the natural eye only sees it as a matter of fact, post-event. And so I wanted to read to you this morning from Scripture, um, and then we'll go into what today is about. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 15 says, For all things, everybody say all things, are for your sakes. Say my sake. Having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving. Everybody say thanksgiving. To abound to the glory of God. This Verse is an interesting verse because it's bookended by two very significant Christian statements, Christian words, uh, Christian subjects. It starts off with all things of for your sakes that grace, right? Having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving abound to the glory of God. And I am a I am very aware that in the body of Christ today, two G words are a big deal. The first one being grace, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's only one gospel, that's the gospel of grace, who Jesus is, what he's done for us. And then we have the outpouring and the manifestation that God is God 
in the statement of seeing the glory of God. We, we see God do miracles. We God, we, we God just, even, even, even doctors will say, that's, I can't explain that. That must be God. Where we see a testimony unfold, where we see a miracle happen in front of our eyes. And we have, we have the gospel, we have the grace of God, the message, and then we end up with this miracle where God is given the glory, where it's just, it's a supernatural deal. And as Christians, we can emphasize this side and we can emphasize this side. And by all means, both are the work of God. You know that, right? We, we, we have nothing, we, we, the only thing we bring to the gospel is our sin. That's the only thing humanity contributes to that story. And our Savior steps up and he says, I'll take that, thank you very much, and I'll give you my righteousness, I'll take your place, I'll fulfill it all, I'll, I'll, I'll pay the price. And he does that. And then we see God moving and we see glory. And often you'll hear uh, followers of Jesus, Christians, talking about grace and talking about glory and really emphasizing that, oh, you know, we just wanna be in a room, we wanna see his glory, we wanna manifest the glory of God. But what's fascinating to me is the writer of this scripture, arguably the most effective follower of Jesus ever, Paul, ties the two together with something that we don't see a lot of in church today. That is the word thanksgiving. Because God gives you a promise, God gives you his gospel, God says, I mean, come on, we all have these t-shirts, coffee cups, bumper stickers, right? Like, hey, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans for your good, not for evil, for a hope, for a future. Oh, thank you, Lord, there's my promise. Uh, some of you sitting here today years back or weeks back, you, you had a moment with God and it was just like, oh, God's shown me an amazing future. Such a big picture, such a big promise. But then you step back into reality, the gap between grace and glory. The, the, that moment between the promise and the promised land. And there's something in the middle that we scripturally need to recognize is needed to tie the two together. We have a heavenly perspective and then we have heaven on earth. But in the middle is something. And what's so fascinating to me is the devil understands that if he can get at that middle, if he can take away your thanksgiving, if he can remove gratitude, you're not gonna see the glory of God manifest. Yeah, you, 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 we, we, we're all getting to heaven, right? We believe in Jesus, we get to heaven. Anyone who believes that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior is going to heaven. But how many people see heaven manifest on earth? How many people see the glory of God actually happen? Well, Paul doesn't tie those two together with great theological experience, with 10 years of Bible school, with reading every book by every Christian author. He ties the two together with a spirit with an attitude, with a perspective. That perspective is gratitude. And if we carry on reading, I want to further clarify, not based on my opinion, but what scripture actually says around the context of this verse, because Paul isn't writing to us from a palace. He isn't writing to us from everything happening. He's writing to us from a prison cell where it would be perceived that God has abandoned him. Where it would be perceived that, hey bro, if anything, 
<clears throat> you, you are missing out on what God's doing because there's people outside doing more and you're, you're limited right now. You're in shackles, you're in chains, you're being tortured. And the truth is, uh, you the guy out of the followers of Jesus, we would say right now, Jesus is not with. Right? Listen to what he says. Therefore, in verse 16, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. So this is not, hey, church, everything's going amazing. Body gets younger and younger, feeling stronger and stronger. No. Outward man's perishing. It's a nice English way of saying dying. This isn't going according to plan, folks. Joints aren't feeling like they used to, right? Living with the wounds, living with the torture, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, right, which is but for a moment, is working against me. No. Is working for us. A far more exceeding and eternal Weight of glory. My affliction, it's only for a moment, is actually working for me. That is not the truth, naturally, that he's living with at the moment. That is a supernatural perspective. Has to be. No one's looking at this guy in prison being tortured like, sure, God's really showing up in his life. I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, I've never even been there. But I can tell you my flesh wouldn't be saying, miracles are happening here right now. He doesn't even say his body's, you know, I've heard stories about, true stories about, about Christians in, uh, in, in countries where they're persecuted and how they get tortured and they just feel the, like the warmth of Jesus and stuff. But he doesn't even tune that. He's like, this body's dying. I woke up today and things aren't feeling like they used to feel. But the inward man is getting stronger. Because the inward man lives according to a different perspective, right? And look at what he says here. While we do not look at the things which are seen, the wounds, the cuts, the cell, right? These things are temporary. But we focus on the things which are not seen. They are eternal. Just because your natural eye doesn't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The, the, the spiritual reality is as real as the natural, if not more real. Why? Because out of the spiritual reality, the earth was created. The earth was not the first reality. It was created out of heaven. So, so a spiritual reality, although maybe not seen by the natural eye, is just as real. And he says here in chapter 5, verses 1, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. If you go on to verse five, he says, now he who has prepared for us this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk on this earth, in this context, by faith, not by sight. Man, we love that verse. Walk by faith, not by sight. The context in which it's written is everything's going wrong. Everything is going against him. Everything is working against him. Everything is, is not happening in the natural eye. But he says, hey, hey, 
That's not the reality I have my focus on. My focus is on a different perspective. The things which are unseen with the natural eye are what my eye is focusing on, right? And he goes on to say, uh, we are confident, yes, well pleased. Rather to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent. In other words, whether alive in this reality or in the eternity, we want to be pleasing to God. It's an interesting space because one of the things I find fascinating is that when we look at Paul's reality, he is writing to us to say to us, you need to understand that between grace and glory is a thanksgiving. And the reason we give thanks in a setting that seems like we're losing, that seems like we don't have God on our side, is because we have a heavenly perspective. We are not looking at the things with the natural eye, we're looking at them. And even, he says, all things working. They're working together. They are on our side, for my sake. And it's so interesting because when you look at that, that is a supernatural revelation that can only come by the Holy Spirit. But when we live with that revelation, do you know God can do anything and will do anything with our lives? And the devil understands this. In fact, it's the very words of Jesus that speaks to this kind of perspective. And he speaks to us by saying, hey, don't prioritize the things of this world. Don't make this the whole story. Don't make this the destination. Don't make life about this stuff. Rather understand that you came from an eternity and you go back into an eternity and there's a far bigger picture about your life here on earth than you realize. Thanksgiving isn't just something Paul is like, hey, you know, us people, we just need to be grateful because God's in heaven just trying to get a, trying to get a toddler to say thank you. No, 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 that's not what it's about. Right, how many of you know? Like we, we've got, Tara and I have three little kids and we're trying to teach them thank you, you know, to say thank you. That's not what God is trying to do in heaven. It's not like he's looking down upon us and going, you know, I want you to be grateful. No, God wants us to be grateful because it is a supernatural tool that ties the message of God and brings about the reality of a miracle of God. How how, how can you say to me that just being grateful is gonna be a miraculous? You know, because some people here today might think all night prayer is the answer to a miracle. No, I'm not saying all night prayer is wrong. But I want to show you here, Paul is saying, you want to see glory? Live in gratitude that God is working a bigger story. See that although maybe 2019 was a year where stuff didn't go according to plan, rather than going, oh, the enemy's winning, the enemy's winning, rather go, God, I'm going to step into a gratitude here that you're working something, right? That you're doing something. How can Thanksgiving be a, 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 a miraculous moment? Do you know something, Jesus gives thanks five times in the Gospels. Do you know when he gives thanks? He gives thanks, for example, as he's been given a schoolboy's lunch and there's 20,000 people that need to get fed. The Bible calls it 5,000, but it's actually only the men that were numbered, but their families and children were around. So most theologians would believe anywhere between 12 and 20,000 people are present. And they hand him a few loaves, a few rolls, 
and some fish. And Jesus gives thanks. But you know when he gives thanks? He doesn't give thanks after everybody's eaten. How many of us here are prepared to praise God after the miracle? We're prepared to say thank you after he does it. Even some people say, you know, I've said to God, if he would today, today, God, if you'll do this for my business, I'll serve you the rest of my life. There's no power in that. There's no supernatural breakthrough in that. Jesus takes this little meal and he raises it up and he gives thanks. Let's be honest, it's not so that God cleanses the food. eh? It's not like, hey, just make this food good for our bodies because it's only gonna feed one person, a schoolboy. He gives thanks to invoke God's blessing. He gives thanks because he's God and he doesn't live in time Jesus lives outside of time. So he has the eternal perspective, which is that God has already multiplied the food to feed the 20,000 people. He says, thank you, because his revelation is the miracles already manifested. We would say, give thanks after everyone's eaten. Has everybody eaten? Yes, thank you, God. Thank you. You know when else Jesus gives thanks? He gives thanks before he calls Lazarus out the tomb. Not after, before. Yes, the village said, thank you, God, after Lazarus came forward. But Jesus said, thank you, God, before. Jesus doesn't give thanks because it's just a traditional thing. He understood it's stepping from a natural fallen perspective that says, look at the circumstances. Look at the situation. Everything's against you. He's been dead four days. You ever wondered why four days? Because in Jewish belief, After three days, the spirit departs the body. That's why they actually have a little vent next to the tomb door because it's to let the spirit actually come out in their thinking as well as it fumigates the room pretty well. Four days means dead, 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 dead. If it was three days, they would have said the spirit actually was still there. There's a whole bunch of stuff there, but anyways. But he doesn't say, hey, thank you, God, after, short did my prayer work. He gives thanks because he knows his prayer will work. But it's a spiritual perspective. And so often in life, when we look at life through the lens of a natural fallen eye, we don't give thanks because it seems like God has abandoned us. It seems like God isn't around. It seems like, you know, if anything I can say, This has been a year where the Holy Spirit's been on vacation in my life. You know, I prayed for healing and we got sick. I prayed for success and things fell apart. I signed up to be a part of church and every single person under the the roof of, of, of heaven has offended me or done something or you know what I'm trying to say. I thought this was, hey, I thought this was cruise time. And what's interesting is a perspective of thanksgiving actually releases a supernatural into a situation. Even if the situation seems dire, the, Paul doesn't say, I understand what's going on. He says, I just know my God is working together for good. I just know this is for me. Now, I'm not saying God sends you disease and sickness, but I am saying this, God works. Even when the devil attacks, God turns it for good. God shifts it for good. You know, the city of Jericho was built to house the giants that were being bred to destroy the nation of Israel. 
It was not a promised land until they occupied it. It was the weapon designed to destroy them. So even in your life, today you might sit and go, my circumstance is designed to destroy me. But I was saying to our church, have you ever looked at it from the perspective of, I'm gonna be grateful because I know from the perspective of heaven, God is working. God uses it for, I said this to our church once, is your perspective as David arriving at the battle that you are there to fight against Goliath or that God is delivering you Goliath's sword? Because David left with a weapon designed to kill him. In fact, later on in his story, it's actually the very thing that rejuvenates him in another battle. He says, I've got nothing to fight with. And the priest says, I think I've got Goliath's sword somewhere. Let me run and fetch it for you anyways. Oh, that gratitude perspective. Oh, you know what, uh, Pastor, what I've given for Link. Serving. Ah, It's been a long year. My goodness. What a blessing. What a privilege. Someone once said to me in our church, what's it like living your life just, just all in for the kingdom? And I said, what other way is there to live? You, you might look at my life and see me being robbed. You don't understand. That's a natural earthly perspective. Jesus says it in Matthew chapter six, verse 19. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. I think prophetically he was looking at South Africa a little bit there. But anyways, we love our land. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You know, Jesus, it's a bit unfair because you're just looking for my stuff. No, 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 Jesus isn't after your stuff. He's not after your stuff. Look at what he's after. He goes in verse 22 to say, the lamp of the body is the eye, and therefore if the eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. The very next verse in 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. He's not after your stuff. He wants you living full of light. And he knows that if you live for this world only, your life actually is purposeless and you are full with darkness. He's not after your stuff. He's God. He's after you living with a life full of satisfaction, full of purpose, full of light. And never before in the history of humanity has humanity had as much stuff as it does now. Had as much money as it has now. Had as much food as it has now. Never before. Yet, never before in history has there been as much depression as there is now. Purposeless, hopelessness. Never before has there been as much suicide as there is now. The devil understands how to neutralize you. The devil understands how to bring hopelessness into your life. And it's just by shifting your eyes from the light, the kingdom of heaven, the real reason you're here, the real reason you breathe today, to my goodness, where are we living? What do we own? What are we building? How much is in my account? What's my career like? What's my affirmation like? Do people approve of me? Am I, do you know what I'm trying to say? Look at social media. You know, you go in there and you just feel like, uh, my life. Oh, it's going nowhere. These people, 
you know about people you never knew about before. Their highs, which magnify your lows. And, and you sit and you look at the stuff and the stuff and the stuff and the stuff. We, we go to the beach and our kids, they come there with all their imagination and they're like, I wanna, I wanna build something. I wanna, I wanna build a castle. Our little girl Hannah, like she's in the princess space now and the princess space is all about castles. And we go to work and we put in a good effort to build her a castle on the beach. The problem is it, it starts with such joy, such ambition, such atmosphere, right? Imagination. But it always ends in tears. It always ends in disappointment. Do you know why? Because at some point or the other, that castle gets washed away. At some point or the other, that little dream world gets shattered. And while she's sitting there crying and living with disappointment, the challenge is not that she missed it by saying she wants to build a castle. No, God designed you with purpose. He designed you to wake up and say, I want to do something with my life. I want to build something. The challenge is that in order for my daughter to recognize that she's made to build something and to have the joy of seeing it lost, is not that she's building and what she's building, it's the location in which she's building it. If she remains building her castle next to the ocean on the sand, she will always end up where is God? But the truth is, in order for her to experience the joy, the reward, that building matters, and that it's for eternity, she just has to change the location. And Jesus is like, let me explain something to you. You're, you're called to build, but if you build here, it'll be destroyed. It'll get washed away. It'll mean nothing. But if you build up there, it's eternal. It's forever. We're all called to build. The thing is just, where are our eyes? And then, you know, some people would say, oh, well, that's typical of God. He wants my stuff. He wants my time. He wants my things. That sounds like a great life. Serve God and lose everything. Serve God, have nothing. Serve God and just suffer. No, no, no. Look at the very next verse. Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, do not worry. Why does he say that? Because the whole crowd's worrying. Let's be honest. Oh my goodness. There goes my life, my dreams, my ambition. There goes all my stuff. Everything's gone. No, no. He's like, hang on a second. Let me explain something to you. Don't worry about what you eat, what you wear, what you drink. Not because it's never going to come, because you're going to have it in bucket loads. The challenge is, what are you focused on? He says, right? Hey, look at the birds. They never sow. They never, they never farm, but they eat from the farm. Look at the lilies. They never toil nor spin, but they're more clothed, more beautiful than Solomon himself. And he says, listen, if all you do is pursue my kingdom, if your eyes are on that, and my righteousness, which is basically what you get through Jesus, chase heaven through me, everything else comes. The difference is you're not pursuing it. You're not worshiping it. It doesn't define you. What defines you is your eternal picture. I often think about Paul writing to us from that prison. And I think about how I would have felt. You know, we know this famous story with Paul and Silas. I don't know if you know it. And it's midnight, it tells us. 
he's in prison, and they start worshiping God, and there's this rumble. And the prison walls come down, and the cell door flies open. And the whole prison comes down because they worshiped, and they get to walk free, and it's this huge story in the land. Wow, do we love that story? When we praise, God breaks through. God does a work. And it, it's true, God did do that. They did worship God and he did literally bring a prison cell to its knees, a prison wall, an entire prison. But the overwhelming majority of Paul's life as a believer following Jesus is spent in a prison that doesn't fall down. So I'll ask you a question. Was that the only time he worshiped in a prison cell and therefore God could move? and bring the prison down? No. He worshiped every day. He prayed every day. He prayed in tongues all the time. How many of us would have turned to Silas after being locked away in jail for a few months and said, Brew, what's happening here, China? Because we sang once, and this place came down to its knees. So how did we sing and what did we sing? Because I'm singing, and no one's singing with me, and no walls are coming down, and quite frankly, I, I don't know, do we need to go on our knees? Do we need to close our eyes? Do we need to raise our hands? Do we need to lift our hands this way? Palms up, palms out. What song was it? Yeah. How did we sing it? Did we, did we fast before we sang it? What, what happened here? Because from my perspective, Silas, God's abandoned us because the walls aren't coming down. I would even have had an argument with God that would have gone like this. God, do you know there's a whole church in Corinth waiting for me to come minister? A whole church, hundreds of people. If you let me get out of this prison, I would be able to lead people to Jesus, lay hands on the sick and they'd be healed, be able to impart strength and edification into the leadership of that church. I have such a message for that church, God. There's a church in Ephesus that I'd so love to share the gospel with. But here we go, stuck in prison. Thanks. You know, the outward would have said, if anything, Paul is the one without the supernatural hand of God working in his life. And you know, Paul writes to us in this context all about living for heaven's reward, standing before Jesus and he dispenses a reward based on what we do for the kingdom. I would have even argued with God going, not only do you rob me of my calling, you now rob me of my reward. Because if I wasn't in prison, I'd be able to go to Corinth, I'd be able to go to Ephesus, I'd be able to go to these churches and share the gospel and people would get saved and my reward in heaven would be so great because 12 people there and 20 people there and 100 people there, maybe even 1,000 people there would come to know Jesus. How dare you leave me in this prison in shackles and chains? But he's thanksgiving. God, I know you're working. He taps into the Holy Spirit. Fine, Holy Spirit, if you're there, you tell me what I should do. Write it down. <laughs> Paper. Are you kidding me? There's no cloud saving. There's no backup storage. How do I even know that this is going to get to anyone? 
I could have had 100 people saved in the flesh. How dare you rob me of such a reward? Write it down. Fine, if I have to, I'll write it down. (laughs) When Paul gets to heaven in the eternal perspective and sees the billions and billions of souls whose lives were shifted by the writing of his feather coil, my goodness, would he have stood back and said how true those words were that even this situation is working for my sake. Even, you know what he would have said to God, thank you that the walls never came down all the time. Because when the walls stayed up, the Bible gets written. The gospel is released. It's not the walls coming down that made Paul's ministry what it is today. It was that the walls stayed up. And how many of us look at our lives where we're stuck in a situation we haven't had a supernatural breakthrough in yet? Sitting in a moment and reflecting and going, Is God really with me? Is what I'm doing really significant? A preacher named Mordecai Ham, who you don't know, but heaven does, went around America evangelizing in crusades and he categorically said in his life of ministry, the most unsuccessful crusade ever that he ever had was in Carolina where he preached the gospel for night upon night upon night. No one got saved. And at the end of the crusade, only one person decided to get saved and it was a boy from the choir who'd been singing the entire crusade. Let me tell you something. It's not bad when one person gets saved. It's bad when that person was in your worship team the entire time. (laughs) And he used to refer to that as like almost pretty much the most unsuccessful crusade of his ministerial career. Yet that boy was Billy Graham. And I just want to ask you a question. We're going to show you something in a moment. But when you look at your life today, you look at the context of this today, you look at Link Church today, do you, do you see it for what it is or what it can be? Do you see your life for what it is or what God can do? Have you abandoned the promise? Have you abandoned the calling? Have you abandoned the passion that was in you at one moment because it feels like you're sitting in a slump? Well, I want to tell you something. Shift your spirit to gratitude because that's what everybody in scripture does. God, I don't understand, but I'm gonna be faithful. I'm gonna keep at it. When you shift it into an eternal perspective, I promise you, you'll see the supernatural unfold in your life. I wanna show you a picture of something. You look at this picture and you see someone, clearly a non-indigenous African opening his Bible around local Africans. And I promise you, by the natural, you look at that and you go, what are you doing? Why would you waste your time? This isn't significant, it's insignificant. If anything, you've missed the Spirit of God in this moment. And this evangelist started out here, but he knew there was a supernatural perspective of heaven. And the truth is, on the other side of day upon day, year upon year of doing this, the video I'm gonna show you was the result of trusting that everything is working together for the good of God, for his glory. No, in the name of Jesus, shout to 
That first picture was of Evangelist Ronald Bonker in his first crusades. Nothing impressive, nothing amazing. But the truth is, look at the fruit. That's what heaven saw. That's what heaven promised. And our family had the privilege of knowing him. He recently went to heaven. He never changed his countenance, whether he was praying with one person or a million people. I want to encourage you today. Don't build with sand. Don't get your hands dirty with sand. Get your hands dirty with cement. Get your life committed to a greater calling, to a bigger story, to a bigger picture. But the beautiful thing about that is Jesus doesn't just promise us that we build up there, but that we see heaven on earth. That your life is not filled with darkness, but when you shift your perspective, it's filled with light. It's filled with life. The world might look down today and just see a few hundred people. But what does that picture look like 30 years from now if we stay connected to the calling of God over our lives? How many millions of people in this region of the world will be worshiping Jesus together? If some business people, if some called people, if everyone here puts their hand up and says, I'll do whatever God's called me to do to be a part of that picture. I wanna encourage you. God's got a great calling on your life today. God's got a plan. Shift your heart to gratitude. See that he's including you in a bigger story. That he's got so much more for you and you'll see God do the most incredible things.